You start. I, I have start. To warm up a little bit. We've yeah. been warming up. I know, but I just, it's like this <laughs> stage fright moment where it's like right when it happens, it makes me nervous. This is Public Health in Action. I'm Mel. And I'm Keely. And this is our seventh episode. Our and seventh episode. Almost our one year podcasting yeah. anniversary. Yep. Birthday. I like saying birthday. Birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. That'd be a little weird. Fia's, we said... <laughs> birthday. Fia's birthday is September 22nd. It's a Libra. Your friendly but infrequent <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Hey, it's because we're hard working. working, you know, people with who do a lot of stuff, you know? We do have a lot it's of not because on. we don't love podcasting. I think it's just or learning want to do it. It's all the things. Right. I think it's just learning the system, learning the process and figuring out the outreach, the social media, yep. the interviews, the editing. All of it. And All you of it. just wait because in nine months when I'm done with grad school, right. we are going to be episode in like crazy. Episode in. I don't know. <laughs> That's now a verb. It is now. <laughs> Officially. It was used in a podcast. That's how words happen. You know? Yeah, right. That's so it has to be real. Yep. I mean, that's what Shakespeare did, right? You know, if if Jiggy can be in the dictionary. Who? Jiggy. The word Jiggy. Oh, I thought you were talking <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was like some artist's name or something. No, that's Chingy. Do you know Chingy? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Anyway, podcasting. Podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> um, didn't you say that you noticed something uh, funny while you were? Since you're you're the co-producer, you yeah. you edit, you do all the you podcast- do the pre-episode. And I do the post-episode. Right. But we overlap in the middle. <laughs> we overlap in the middle. We do episodes together. But, I mean, you said you noticed something when you were editing. Yeah. After um, the last seven episodes. <laughs> More specifically with the Gordon episode and then this episode with Zamir. Mm-hmm. And the public health speaking overlaps <laughs> like the language that the you all use and the patterns of your language are all very similar and i'm saying that in a loving charming like i think it's Someone charming that's, way you're, right you're but i'm si- just noticing it because i have to listen to your voices while i'm editing <laughs> i think i think also it's because like you're from outside of the public health realm as looking in as an educator yeah and you notice these speaking patterns we have in the way yep. that we talk. and um, well, Yeah, I do have to notice speaking patterns and language patterns in my students, too. So oh. it's probably also that mindset. of like I didn't know that. To, yeah, like that's we, you know, when we do our language standards, a lot of that is seeing how they are able to represent words mm. verbally, on okay. paper, reading them. So it could be even a little bit of that, too, So actually. you're analyzing me? Is that what you're trying to say? I'm just <laughs> no, I just noticed something. <laughs> that So from speaking with Gordon and speaking with Zamir and then talking with me, yeah. we have a way of... <laughs> you're doing it right now. <laughs> I know. I know. 
Stop laughing Sorry. at me. No, you all are just so... And this is a good thing, yeah. but it's just like, I think it's funny to recognize it in three yeah. different people in who are all in public health, right? Yeah, right. Um, but you all are so thoughtful and intentional with your wording that you do the same slow down of your words and the same long pauses. <laughs> and it's like, I think it's a good thing because you are... You work with populations that are ever-changing. You work in a field that isn't, like, stagnant at all, no. right? Yeah. And so the verbiage, the language is constantly being updated, and yeah. you have to, which I wish more people would do this regardless of their career choice, you have to be respectful of the communities that you're working in, and you have right. to use the proper language to discuss these big issues, and so you are being very intentional, yeah. but it's just like teaching yeah. is very, everything we have to teach is already planned out. Right. And so we have to do, whereas like you guys are taking in information constantly and updating as mm -hmm. you go and having to be very slow and intentional as you're working. Mm -hmm. We have to do all of that like before, way before. Yeah. You do advanced, <laughs> advanced planning. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's advanced planning instead of like like smaller updates and yeah. I think I think public health specifically the reason why a lot of us do talk in that manner is because we know how much language matters right. and we understand we constantly think about impact mm -hmm. and we understand impact and the weight our words have on <laughs> I'm doing it right now mm -hmm. have on communities and um, like locally and globally so right. we're trying to be very careful in the way that we speak because you don't want to say something that will effectively right. silence other groups of people or alienate people or yep. hurt them in a way that is negatively impacting their health. Right. So for this episode, did he reach out to us or did you reach out? I reached out to, well, okay. When we started our Instagram page at FIA podcast, Zamir followed our page and he lives in DC, I believe. And he was just someone whose page stood out kind of right away. Yeah. And we had been eyeing, like, his work for a few months, I would say. Way to make it creepy, Mel. <laughs> Way to make it creepy. You know he's going to listen to this, right? <laughs> what's, what's the public health way of saying I sur surveying? We were yeah. surveying. <laughs> we had the surveillance. <laughs> I don't um, think that's better. <laughs> anyway, we recognized we recognized the like, work that the he was work doing. That he's doing, and and it, yeah. he was just somebody that we knew we wanted to interview, interview, eventually. collaborate with. Yeah, and, he has yeah. such a wealth of knowledge and expertise. For being someone so young in the field, um, he has such a great connection to everything, and he really understands the way things connect. So we definitely wanted to talk to him about his work with health policies. And yeah, we sent him a message and we had a really great um, initial phone call with him. Yeah, we were all so jazzed that we were like, oh, like we should have just had our mics that. out for this episode. <laughs> this should be the episode. Yeah. But I do think that we, in this longer conversation that we had mm -hmm. for this do touch on a lot of the things we talked about in that initial phone call yeah. and even expanded right 
into so many other areas with our thinking. We had a really great time talking with him. He's such a great time. Yeah, yeah. he's the coolest guy next to Gordon. They're both next really cool. Gordon. They're both How do really you cool. Compare? You can't compare. They're both it's just amazing people. Yeah. So yeah, we had a great time. Maybe we'll do a follow up with him. Yeah. Sometime soon. That'd be cool. And so here's our interview with, with Samir. Samir. This episode is sponsored by Portland Earthquake Kits. Portland Earthquake Kits wants to strengthen our communities. The West Coast hasn't experienced a major earthquake in modern history, but we know that the San Andreas Fault in California and the Cascadia Subduction Zone Fault in Oregon and Washington will each erupt in the future. It's imperative that we prepare by storing extra supplies and drinking water. These simple measures save lives. For many people, this is an overwhelming task, and so they never get started. Portland Earthquake Kits makes it easy and affordable. You can choose a pre-made kit that includes essentials for your home, an evacuation bag, or build your own kit on their easy-to-use website. Portland Earthquake Kits offers free delivery on water containers in the Portland area and free delivery on all kits. Go to portlandearthquakekits.com to prepare your household and your community. Cheers! My name is Zamir M. Brown. I am founder and CEO of Speaker for Health, LLC. We recently got our designation August 31st, 2021. But for the past several months, we've been working with individual students, uh, small organizations in a more informal capacity to build out their services and to guide them through the process to be the best professionals and providers that they can be. So essentially what we're really trying to do is amplify and actualize the full potential of these individuals and organizations to promote health, to prevent disease, and to advance policies for the communities that they serve. Now, when I'm not doing that, or better yet, when I'm not moonlighting as the CEO, <laughs> I'm actually a policy fellow for the National Health Law Program, where a lot of my work centers around health equity um, and more specifically social risk factors and the social determinants of health, you know, the aspects that are interwoven and affect all components of people's lives and, and unfortunately either manifest itself in like poor health or can actually result in, you know, positive health. So there's social risk factors and there's what I call social protective factors. Uh, so a lot of my work centers around that, but through a Medicaid lens to say, what can we actually do in our capacity with Medicaid to provide access to health care and resources for low income and underserved communities to give them the best chance that we can at the healthiest life that they can possibly attain. Um, when not doing that, <laughs> I'm a governing counselor for the APHA's community health planning and policy development section where we focus on community health and policy development. Um, but as a governing counselor, um, I represent our section, its interest and, you know, the mission of the association uh, to advance policies and programs uh, and especially uh, develop best practices to protect the health and well-being of, you know, the nation. And I'm um, recently this year, a board director for Integrative Medicine for the Underserved. Uh, started off on their policy and advocacy committee, but 
of my journey has been an interesting one, but I got a lot of exposure to integrative medicine and naturopathic practices. Uh, and, you know, I made a commitment to always look at the full spectrum of care and all options to make sure that, you know, people that typically don't have access and the resources to protect their health actually have, you know, a wider variety because there's an expansive toolbox um, that people can use. And some of that comes down to integrative medicine. Sometimes that's conventional medicine. Sometimes it's preventative practices, um, as well as a wide range of other things, you know, whether it be, you know, education or like food and nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a bit um, about me uh, in the more professional capacity, but educationally, Associates in Science from Durham Technical Community College uh, in pre-medical studies, because I thought I was going to be a doctor, uh, a bachelor's in arts uh, from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in medical anthropology uh, and a minor in chemistry, and my MPH from George Washington University, uh, Milken Institute School of Public Health. That is incredible. <laughs> Do you have free time ever? <laughs> Um, is there ever free time? I think is the real, is the real yeah, question. Is there free I like that rephrasing. <laughs> right, right. That's a better question. It's no, great. that's incredible, Zamir. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on our episode. And yeah, we're so excited to unpack that a little bit more. <laughs> oh, definitely glad to. More than happy to. Yeah. I had a professor, I had a health systems professor that got his degree in medical anthropology too. And um, he was thinking about medical school, but then he fell in love with that. And then, yeah, his MPH and yeah. Yeah, medical anthropology is where I actually started to learn about the social determinants. You know, they weren't talking about it in that way, but, you know, we were talking about systems of oppression and, you know, racial equity and, you know, and social justice and how all of those things tie together, you know, in our system of health. But then we also were taking the opportunity to look at different cultures and how they view health and wellness. And so it really helped me start to recognize that there's, you know, a lot of bias and a lot of issues in our own healthcare model and framework and system and just understand that it's just deeper than a doctor's office. Yeah. Yeah. And even the experience in the doctor's office too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we want to, speak to you know we've talked before about how how do we talk about public health without a political bias particularly and that conversation being difficult and mostly mostly because okay I feel like I was shamed into saying that public health isn't political and it's because when starting a public health podcast there's so much stigma around being political and um and which side are you which on? side yeah and like and I think unquote. it I think that pushes people away and I don't want to push people away because explaining what public health is is so vital to preventing death to health promotion to education um access everything and I I was just explaining this to you mm-hmm. but I think if we want to talk about public health in a political way I think the first thing that has to happen is we have to lay the groundwork as explaining the political view, but from a social issue viewpoint, and then explaining how that is impacted in policy. So then people understand how to decide what is the best political stance to take. 
Does that make sense? I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's what like drove us to wanting to speak with you specifically too. Right. And like, what is, you know, what do these policies look like? Mm-hmm. How do they operate within our systems? And like, what's the importance of health policy and how does it impact the social determinants of health and, and vice versa and vice versa? Yeah. So one thing so, that I want to definitely start off with saying, <laughs> what was that? That was a million questions in one, but. <laughs> taking notes, taking notes. Um, so first, you know, public health is definitely political, but in my like opinion, it doesn't have to be divisive, right? But yes. unfortunately, that's how things end up coming out. But while, and as you said, you know, public health it's not an it's not an apolitical thing. It's not. Unfortunately, there's no way that we can really go about that. In an ideal world, that would be great if we were all on the same page and we all had the same views about what health looked like and what resources and access people needed to achieve that. But unfortunately, that's not the reality, which means that public health is going to have to be political because people have philosophical differences on who should have access to healthcare, what resources people should not have to pay for, what things should people have to pay for, you know? And so we have to be able to have those conversations, but I think it's just really important to not do it in a divisive fashion. And because, you know, when we start talking about low-income communities, historically marginalized populations, you know, people that need the assistance from the government, that also makes it even more political. Um, so when I, the framework that I often follow is that discrimination is unfortunately the, the foundation for which a lot of the problems start to be derived. And then that's where you start to have structural issues because the bias, you know, the discrimination, you know, that animosity gets woven into the systems. And that's when you start to have structural discrimination uh, and the structural determinants of health, which then manifests itself in the social determinants of health, you know, so the places where people live, work, play, pray, that's how I view things, you know, so it goes, you know, that discrimination, then it goes the structure, and then it goes the social determinants of everything, which means that it's going to all be woven into the policy specifically in that, that middle space. Uh, And so, it is political, you know, it is political in that sense, because that's how these systems are, are created. And that's how they are, you know, established. And, you know, so it's, it goes back and forth, you know, whatever the policies are in that structural realm that are influenced by that discrimination are going to result in different environments, some hospitable, others not, uh, not hospitable whatsoever. But then those environments, you know, that are created, also then influence, you know, how policies um, are created and what they need to look like, you know, whether that's in a positive uh, direction or a negative direction. Yeah, I like how you brought up environments in that last bit, because I think, you know, and there are, there are at times like conflicting sources, like I think of a school, right, and there are a lot of those structural issues that impact a school, no matter how hard the people in the building are like, actively working against the those negative points in the structure to like build an environment Mm -hmm. that tries to take down those barriers that tries to build access that tries to make things can you give an example equitable 
well, I look mm-hmm. at like, I'm this year, I'm in a title one school. What is, okay. You but know, for people- so a title one school is like, like typically socioeconomically poor. They don't have the same funding because funding comes from first, the biggest amount is from uh, local property taxes. So when property taxes are low in a neighborhood or district mm-hmm. is poorer, they're not pulling in funding. So it's already a poor community. And then the way the school is funded, the school is then does not have the same resources as like a school in a wealthy neighborhood. Right. Um, and oftentimes like grade points are lower. They have more um, special education or IEPs, which is like behavioral needs for students they're typically racially diverse might be immigrant families you know it's a lot of stuff happening in that in that space Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of different structural things that push against the desire to create an environment for those kids and students and and the families too like we have a food pantry out of our school for families we have a social worker that will work with housing for families if they need safer housing or like have to move or Mm -hmm. any of that um but it doesn't it like is just like a little booster seat on all the problem like we're like we're there putting in the work but there's still all these other forces you're working towards health equity yeah 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 it's definitely very important you know and that environment is is key um, to how, you know, everything is said. You know, I used to say a long time ago, you know, that community is key and community is everything. I think I still stand by that to an extent, but even that is still like extremely complicated. You know, the the environment um, is really big and I'm not talking just, you know, environment, you know, from like environmental health or, you know, like trees and grass, that is also a big part of it. But I started really looking at like the environment as it relates to, you know, the culture and, you know, the people and the build, you know, and that's, I guess, when you start talking about socioeconomic, what is it, the socio-ecological model or something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that language explanation is important too, that like the way we're speaking to environment, it's like the places in which we exist. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. like the mountain out there. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's not the mountain, it's not the trees, you know, yeah. like, and that was like one of, I think, the most reformative as well as formative questions that I was asked in my anthropology studies was, which comes first, being an actor or being acted on? You know, is it that you act on your environment first and then that is how everything is set in motion or does the environment act on you? And for me, I was saying that it's like, that is both. You know, because the question was pretty much presented in the way of like, which is most most important. But as human beings, like being like one of the few species that have like so much capacity to actually completely change their environment, we initially are acted on by, you know, the environment that we're brought into, you know, but then we can also change it, you know, based upon like how it's been acted on. And so the thing that ends up becoming I think interesting and that might be a little bit too intricate to like really delve into like in this like one sitting is people's autonomy to do so Um, because some communities they have the ability to make their environment exactly what they want it to be but then other communities you know typically communities of color historically marginalized populations they do not so whatever things you know look like 
is unfortunately what they have to have to deal with, you know, and that's when those policies and things come back around, are there grocery stores, you know, like, are there, you know, like, what's the transportation model look like, um, you know, even housing, you know, a lot of times, you know, people are out here pushing food and nutrition, you know, which is important, we love it, but people don't have kitchens, you know, um, what are we supposed, what are we supposed to do with that, you know, and so that's why it's like this whole framework, and that's when to bring it back around, you start to really recognize like how political public health is, inherently um, and you we unfortunately can't like stray away from that because that's how things are done in this country you know it's through the politics it's through the policy again i don't believe that it should have to be divisive um but you know when those different philosophies on who should have and who should and who shouldn't you know starts to make it charged and it starts to make it more problematic yeah, yeah those internal biases do drive a lot of people yeah. to making even the most simple factual information mm-hmm. divisive and well, that's that's where we like you just said hit those issues what would you say the connection between structural systematic racism to trauma and public policy are like how does how does all of that relate to your health i mean it's a lot that's a heavy it's, it's all woven together <laughs> it's all woven together uh like i you know, through all of my like studies and just through a lot, a lot of the exposure, I was really always trying to find, okay, what is the underlying root cause of disease? Like that was always like the thing, you know, that I was focusing on. And so over the years, like I felt like I was getting closer and closer bit by bit. And eventually, you know, while I was like living in Seattle, like one day kind of the light bulb went off and I was like, this, like the framework, how these policies like all come together it establishes a framework in the infrastructure for which everything is built but then that goes to say okay like why is it built in this particular way and so that's when i bring back in that discrimination that racism like that bias and i say that that is like the primary driver for everything that we see unfortunately you know because you have that racism you have that discrimination uh, that people carry and then these people end up having power uh well I wouldn't make it sound so passive you know these people have taken power um through so many different like models and in so many different ways over so many different generations to where they can then create systems that can still enact their will and then that built out that next level which just starts to manifest itself in people's you know personal health and also community health as well as population health and the cycle you know continues because you know one thing that we have I think we have to acknowledge is that the way systems are are set up you know that structural level yes it manifests itself in poor health for you know these communities that we talk about but it also creates segregation and segmentation between other communities that are then being trained to be oppressive you know I know people that I went to school with you know a a liberal arts institution and they were saying that they were taught that everybody that came to this country did it of their own free will and they were like if if you're black like why are you mad like just go back home and I was like wait what um what do you you mean how could you possibly say that and they were like listen you know but 
for me, I, <laughs> I try, I really try to like actually listen, you know, and I said, listen, what are you talking about? Because that's ridiculous. And they're like, listen, this is what we have been taught, you know, is that everybody has come here as like immigrants or migrants and they, you know, you're all here trying to seek the, the better life, you know, like you wanted to come to America. And I was like, oh, no. And they're like, what? And this is, you know, us in our 20s, you know, and these people are going forward to be like leaders and, you know, heads right. of industries and they yeah. have these like thoughts and some of that is coming from like the school system you know that right. you want to talk about racism and discrimination and well, and you want to talk about things being made divisive to like the fact mm -hmm. that there's arguments over how educators teach history and we're like we yeah. want to teach what happened exactly. we want to teach yeah. what actually happened and you're mm -hmm. trying to tell us we can't because somebody threw out the buzz phrase of critical race theory Exactly. And you don't even know what that means. And we just want to teach the things as they were. Like we want to be accurate. It your health. And and well, like, and I then just... and then like think of the population at my school. Right. Like I have a lot of black families in my classroom. Right. Like I'm we're not gonna sit there and lie to them when they especially right. when they already know. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's absurd. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly how it starts to manifest in, you know the health coming across like poorly for like a certain population but that's how this model continues to exist is that you know the policies and the practices you know they are teaching like there's different education systems you know and that is why access to information you know is so important and so you know i would say you know just from having that conversation with some of my colleagues it really turned some things around for them they weren't like the most problematic people on the face of the planet right. but it really did help them look at things differently. And so, you know, we still stay in contact today. And sometimes sometimes they're like, hey, like, how can I make sure to have conversations with, you know, my clients or people that I interact with, you know, that, you know, won't come across, you know, in a discriminatory, uh, discriminatory fashion, you know, but before that was not something that was even, you know, on their radar. And so it, it's all tied together on how the discrimination makes, the systems and then the systems create the poor health but then how the system is set up you know in a way to where it continues to just protect and secure itself and ensure that the cycle is going to continue right right if that we, answers your question yeah yeah it does, it does. Yeah. and then i have a follow-up <laughs> <laughs> um when you look at policies and considering the things that you just spoke to do you look at like restorative justice or restorative practices like moving forward? Is that something like oh, we yeah. talk about Good that question. in education a lot, but like, how do you look at those things? That's exactly how I look at things. So okay. to, to actually build out a piece of things with like my journey to policy was that I was really tied in more with trying to be a provider. You know, I wanted to be a physician. And while I was in the clinic, I was like, this is not going to make as much of an impact as I would like, because I'm still seeing the same things day in and day out with all these different clients. I'm like, what's happening is not happening in the doctor's office. It's happening where they live, work, play, pray, you know, everything like that. And I said, okay, so it's got to be deeper. And I've I forget exactly what was like the straw that broke the camel's back for me, but I really 
realize that, especially for a lot of communities, you know, communities of color, you know, and other like populations that are like highly discriminated, discriminated against and like targeted is that damage has been done to such an extreme extent. And then because let's use the example of racism through Jim Crow uh, and slavery, they say, oh, well, slavery's over. That's just done. But when it comes down to it, what was done to actually promote healing? Because then this is when I go back to the medical mindset and this ties directly into the restorative piece. If somebody, let's say, excuse me for saying it this way, was like stabbed in the thigh and then it, that in and of itself caused harm and caused damage having that knife. But then people say, oh, you know what? And so the knife in this case let's, is, let's say Jim Crow. Okay, boom. The knife is there and it's in the community. All right. Damage, harm, problem, pain. But then we, for whatever reason to think, just take the knife out. And then that's it. You should just be able to heal. Now, we all know that you then need to go to the doctor uh, and go get surgery to actually tend to that wound. But we don't have that same philosophy when it comes to the world in our nation specifically. We have a gaping wound that we have left unattended to. And we're just like, oh, yeah, you know, it should just like be able to heal. And not to say that some healing isn't going to happen, but most likely the wound is going to fester and it's not going to actually heal the way it needs to. And so that's when I started looking at policies and saying like there's like these gaping wounds and the policies need to come through and actually be the sutures they need to be the stitches you know we need to do surgery we need to disinfect you know and that's one that restorative you know lens comes in and while we're looking at equity you know because we need to clean the wound we need to make sure that the muscles are actually going to be able to come back together and that the skin can heal to the best of its ability we're still going to have a scar you know but we have to do that work and I would say there's definitely segments of the population that want to do that work, yep. but I don't think a lot of people see it that way. And it's like, oh, well, that problem's over. And it's like, no, right. like, we have to like work on that. Right. And to keep going with your metaphor too, we need to include the patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we yeah. talked about this past week when we did our professional development as educators, we talked about restorative practices in the classroom and how there's a spectrum of you can do things to a person, which often becomes punitive or negative. You can do things for a person, which is like high support, but might not meet the right needs, Mm -hmm. or you can do things with them. And that's like both high control and high support without being like too far in either way. And we talked about that as like, that's the base level of understanding what restorative practices is, is Uh like everybody has an equal space at the table to actually restore the thing we're looking at. Exactly. Easier way to say that I think would be like meeting people where they're at, knowing, knowing where they're at and then being on that level with them and working with them to figure out how you can help them succeed. And understanding your power in it too. Yeah. Like I'm not here to do things to you or for you. I'm here to do them with you. And we have equal space and we're just meeting to accomplish this goal. Yeah. Yeah. That's why like since UNC, my whole model has been more about like service, you know, like in 
like collaboration and not saying fix a problem or help a population. It's like to serve a population or serve with a population, you know, because, you know, this is work that, you know, side by side, you know, there might be areas where some expert might have expertise, you know, but that expertise still needs to be leveraged and used like in conjunction with what that community is actually looking for and what they need. But then there's so much more that the community is actually going to be able to say, you know, about like what they know since they're the ones that are actually, you know, living there. Cause just even when I'm thinking about that metaphor, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, we initially need our, like our first responders to like get that person and do their part to make sure that, you know, the person doesn't, you know, and it's so gory. Wow. Um, but to, like, to bleed out, <laughs> and get them to, you know, the hospital. And then, you know, but yeah, there's gonna be hope some conversation like with the patient where they're hurt, you know, so they can make sure that they have a comprehensive understanding of how that person like is feeling and like what happened, you know, so other things can happen to hopefully make sure this act does not occur again. And whoever did that doesn't do it again. But then when you get to the like room, do you get to the emergency room? And then that's when some of, like where there's a bit of a trade-off, you know, where there's more work that ends up done, being done by the nurses and the doctors and surgeons to take care of that. Yeah. But then after we like hopefully make it through that process, then you start to look at, at the healing. And then that's when things start to shift again, where it's like, okay, what is your pain level? You know, how much mobility do you have? Okay, what is the PT, what does the physical therapy look like? What does the occupational therapy look like? You know, what does the medicine look like? You know, that's when it really starts to shift back towards like the patient, you know, right. in its way in the community members or the individuals. And so all in all, absolutely right. It's, yeah. we all have to be tied together in this process. And could you imagine in like, again, to stick with that metaphor, if one team did not communicate with the other, you right. don't have success. And I think that's where like, you know, obviously we talk about this a lot because public health and education, but like, imagine if all these things that are viewed as separate things, but really aren't education, social work, public health, if we actually built things together, instead of as like, the school is just a school, the public health office or department of health is just that. They like, they might talk about little things like a vaccine or like a breakout at a school, but like other than that, they don't really connect and like all of those things. Or like, they do, or they, they do connect yeah. on a small level. Oh, but like I just, think I think public health specifically needs yeah. to do a better job at bridging those gaps right. and like making it stronger. Right? Am I right, Samir? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like we all need to be have like a greater understanding yeah. of like for those of us who are in fields that work with these populations, just like if the EMT just like pushed the guy in the surgery room or whatever, like, you know, like, and just was like, there you go. Like, they don't know what happened. Like exactly. you have to have consistent communication and understand that we're all building these things and all these systems, they're not apart from each other they're interlocking mm -hmm. and right. how they all impact one another and and these communities are dealing with all of these pieces of a puzzle and how can we understand that and then meet each other too would it be fair okay to play on the metaphor in my own way <laughs> <laughs> would it be fair to say that okay the scar the scarring from the wound 
represents trauma and everything that's done to help the wound with the healing is trauma-informed care. Yeah. And even, even before being stabbed, it's everything that plays a role into that situation happening is also a part of the trauma. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, th I'm, I think I'm gonna work <laughs> on a different metaphor. Uh, so <laughs> it's so violent. But unfortunately, it is it is the exemplification of our nation. Yeah. It, it truly is. It it truly is, and it's it's very unfortunate. So maybe I'm not gonna actually change the metaphor um, because right. we need to actually talk about things for what they are and how they are. You know, there's been a a lot of wrong. There's been a history of violence and a history of, of damage and detriment. And if we don't look at it as such and we try to sugarcoat it and soften it, how can we possibly, you know, address it? You know, because and this is when the justice piece comes in, because if a person doesn't, if we don't talk about what happened to the person's like thigh, you know, and saying like, oh, this person was, you know, assaulted, you know, and they were like, they were like, they were stabbed how is it possible that you're going to hold the appropriate party like accountable um, for those actions to ensure that they likely don't do that again? Um, and so, yeah, like I'm going to keep, I'm going right. to keep the metaphor, but you know, yeah. I, think that's <laughs> that's I like it. One. Yeah. It's, it's also, it's accessible. That's what's good about it's it. Descriptive. Like yeah. we, you know, and I also think to speak to what you just said about like, we have to understand the history. We also have to understand that like a lot of those histories are ongoing. Yeah. Just because yeah. it's in the past doesn't mean it stopped. Mm -hmm. And like, not just right. with trauma informed care, but like with policy, within education, yeah. like within all of these things, there's been um, almost like rebranding of things mm -hmm. to make it like if you just for a recent conversation that's in like the public a lot like if you look at like the history of policing mm -hmm. as a perfect example yeah. there's been like name and title changes there's been all these things to like push that as like a good perfect thing for Wait, a community name and title changes of like of like what policing looks like mm -hmm. like where it came oh. from but then when you look back at the history of it you find you see I thought you were talking about the name and title changes of the police officer no. <laughs> <laughs> no but like but you know like where it came from yeah and just because the names were changed doesn't mm -hmm. mean that the system was actually improved upon that it doesn't still reinforce things from where it started and I think a lot of history looks like that too like just yeah. because we shifted a lens like you said like just because we removed the actual document of Jim Crow does not mean that any of those things still haven't been taught across generations it doesn't mean that any of those things aren't still enforced in some way societally especially yeah because I would even think about the um to still stick with the metaphor, you know, just thinking about those blatantly racist uh, and discriminatory and oppressive policies, you know, those policies, you know, pretty much created a generation saying, it is okay for you to go and stab people. And yeah. it made it to where other populations, it's like, you just have to live with getting stabbed by some people. And so now they're like, okay, we took that doctrine off the books, but these people still think that it's okay to go around stabbing people and you have people that have it in their mind saying well I guess getting stabbed is just a part of my a part of my life and that just goes to that 
some people think that it's okay to be racist, to be a bigot, and to oppress others. And some people are like, well, I just guess I got to deal with this, you know, oppression. And, you know, that's just highly, you know, problematic. Yeah, people think that way because it's like, well, this is my life. Like, this is the hand I was dealt and right. I have to live with it. And that's mm-hmm. not true. Health is a human right. right. And there are people that want to fix the system, improve the system. Right. And that's with so much discrimination too. Like basically yeah. any, any, any way that you can discriminate against somebody, like those people are unfortunately like the people being discriminated against. In a lot of cases, they're used to it. Yeah. To speak to something I don't know if it's smaller issue, but we were talking yesterday about um, like doctors talking about mm. people's weights as like a sole issue and like having like a bias against like the, your size equals Curvier unhealthy. Women. And yeah. like, I've dealt with that in the office and I am technically the average size woman like American like American 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 woman woman. Mm -hmm. and like I've dealt with that discrimination and like it took me a long time to even think about it because I'm so used to going in the doctor's office and then being like do you want to talk about your weight Mm -hmm. and like even those small those like smaller scale things that are more like individual how we adjust ourselves to be like well I just have to deal with being looked at this way Mm -hmm. because of this societal standard And like also being a queer woman and like mm-hmm. things that come with that. And, right. um, you know, if we look at especially how the, when those things overlap, like mm-hmm. in our, in our gender yeah. episode, we talked about trans youth. And then if you look at how trans uh, black women are impacted too, like when those mm-hmm. things layer upon each other and you're facing multiple discriminatory things too and how that even further impacts your health impacts your access creates multiple barriers like it's not always a singular issue or race and socioeconomic status like those things that then you have to again go back to our metaphor you might have multiple stab wounds yeah (laughs) Yeah, i'm gonna bring that about yeah in different ways Mm -hmm. yeah no absolutely to just even like share some of my own experience, I guess, or my own realizations, like, you know, just being black in America, you know, in moving in, you know, public health is a very white space. Uh, as I'm realizing, I didn't that know that going into it. Yeah. Um, but I'm seeing that, you know, day by day. Um, but I just, um, I was sharing something that I was like going through, you know, with a, like a friend of mine and I said, oh yeah, you know, I'm dealing with, like this person, you know, was saying something about uh, how somebody that they were associated with, like has some type of, you know, biases towards, you know, black people um, and everything like that. And I was just like, I was just telling my friend, I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, whatever, you know, like, that's just unfortunately like, how the cookie crumbles, you know, I said, moving on. And she was like, Zamir, that's not okay for you to be okay with that because that's not normal. That's not supposed to be normal. And then it kind of just brought things back around to me. I was like, I really have developed this, these protective mechanisms just like, oh yeah, you know, this is just going to happen. Like, oh, you know, well, it is what it is type of thing. And to some extent it kind of is because I'm not on a crusade to like change everybody's perspective of me, you know, but 
that doesn't mean that I have to just completely just accept it and, you know, not say something more to, you know, the person that was initially saying something to me about like, oh yeah, you know, my friend has this uh, racial bias against you. And I'm just like, well, you know, unfortunately that's how it is, you know, type thing. I'm like, well, you need to talk to you. You need to talk to your friend and like get them right because they don't need to like have that perspective. You know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not acceptable. It's not okay. And, you know, we just cannot become desensitized to these issues, you know, just because we're moving, because for me, like I can't be desensitized to it as a person that's working on policy because like, if I get into a space where I'm just like, oh, you know, well, that's just how the cookie crumbles. That's just how things go. Then I'm not doing my part in trying to uproot you know, these issues, not to say that I have ever been, you know, that like, quote unquote, okay, you know, with things, you know, but that's the work that I think a lot of us, you know, have to do, especially if we don't ascribe to these identities is saying we can't just live in a world where it's like, oh, you know, well, uh, discrimination exists and it's there and, you know, okay, you know, no, we need to try to combat that in our capacities, you know, every day, um, however we can, whether that's sharing information or educating our friends and family members, uh, because then to go back to the very first thing, that's when it starts to tie back into like the political piece and the policies, because when people are coming around and voting on, on issues, you know, they're going to do it based off of their personal experience and their personal perspectives. You know, unfortunately, through some research I was doing rec uh, recently for my job, I was looking at how white opinion is one of the primary factors that drives whether or not a state expands Medicaid. Yep. And uh, that was very disheartening. You can have the research literally said non-white opinion is insignificant. As it relates to whether or not a state would expand Medicaid based on the predictive models that they have. That that's terrible. Yeah, that's terrible. That and that's not something that we can be okay with. And that's why when people are saying like, oh, well, I have like racist family members or I have family members that have this bias, you need to do any and everything in your power to help them see the light, to address that sickness, because it is a sickness, it is a disease, it is an illness. It needs to be addressed because it has so much impact on everybody's life, everybody's well-being. We have too many states that do not have expansion that's leaving so many people without healthcare, without services, without any type of reprieve to help them because of people's personally held bias. It's not just a personal issue. It does not live in a silo. It is not just often like, oh yeah, you know, my dad is racist, you know, type thing. And oh, I just don't really talk to my dad like that because like his perspective, your dad's perspective, your mom's perspective, your aunts and uncles, your friends, your cousins, everybody's perspective ends up affecting everyone else's lives. And right. we need, need, it is imperative that we acknowledge that and that we do something about it because it directly ties into everyone else's health and well-being and that's why to go to the very first point of how we started 
this conversation, why public health ends up being political because it, politics and policy, it's still people. These systems are informed by people, personal choice, personal perspectives that make these things the way that they are. Right. And I think too, especially for me, I'm from a white family that's from upper Michigan, very rural, very conservative. And the majority of my family did not stay conservative because we're, most of us are union people. So we've like shifted, (laughs) shifted um, that way. But my conservative family members Mm -hmm. um, have alienated or me because I don't let them talk in discriminatory fashions mm-hmm. around me. And um, it's it's ended up being where like, I haven't mm-hmm. talked to several family members in years, but not because I don't want to, it's because they don't want to, because I call them out on anything that's racist, that's homophobic, that's inaccurate to our, where our society is moving to. And, you know, I think, being willing to have those conversations and being willing to be an advocate and say what you just said is not okay. You have to be willing when you're discriminated against and you become desensitized to that discrimination. Mm -hmm. And those, like you said earlier, like a friend saying like, you shouldn't be okay with this. I'm not okay with it. The person who recognizes that it's not okay Mm -hmm. first I think should be the person that can address that. Like what you just said isn't okay because the people experiencing the discrimination might not realize it. I think I think there's something either. that should be said about that person too because the way that my professor, one of my professors described this and I think it's the most powerful phrasing, someone that can recognize how some sort of um, decision or situation effectively silences the other person if when someone recognizes that in the other person and they can call attention to that and then call attention to what created that like upstream thinking getting to the root of the issue that's where we can create change and I think it's like building on expanding our mindset and realizing like how we impact everyone through our actions, through our policies, um, and just building that empathy and compassion and sense of humanity for everyone. I don't know. It's, it's so, there's so much strength involved in being able to see, recognize what is unspoken. That goes to that sphere of control. And I think one thing that you really stress that I want to unpack some more is like that, that the piece of humanity, we have to make sure that even when talking about these like heavy issues that we're still doing it in a respectful fashion and coming from like a place of positivity and collaboration and not animosity. Um, Because, you know, when we end up hating a person because of their views, their perspective, that already starts to make it practically impossible to help them see things differently or better you know and that's exactly what we're seeing even with you know vaccines and masking and so on and so forth trying to use fear tactics and you know we have to be able to to speak to each other respectfully I can't 
control anybody. Um, just as no one can control me, um, I have to be responsible for myself. And a lot of these issues can definitely get us riled up and they can be very inflamed. There are times and places where, you know, we need that type of, that type of energy. But I think a lot of times, because we're so frustrated and angry mm -hmm. at the issues as like we should be, we should not be happy with them. We should not be okay with them. But then we enact that on some of the individuals, you know, right. in our lives. And it breaks, it breaks the bridge, you know, it burns the bridge down. And so now yeah. you can collaborate and now that person will never listen to you again. Like you had an opportunity to, to like, just educate, to share your perspective. And that's one of the models that I feel has worked the most effectively for me. Right. That I really try to listen. I don't get into, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook comments and, you know, all right. that different stuff, yeah. you know, I try to be practical, respectful, and, and try to understand, you know, what people are saying and why they're saying it and trying to hope that they can do the same for me. But if I see that the person is coming with, unfortunately, disrespectful energy, being rude uh, and obnoxious or whatever you want to call it, I'll say my piece and then I'll remove myself uh, from the context because I'm going to leave you feeling respected yeah, because you're not going to make me into like the villain in your story. Yeah. You know? And that's where I think, like you said too, like it takes a willingness and an openness from everybody and every perspective and to actually actively listening to mm -hmm. each other because, and we talked about this with Gordon mm -hmm. and vaccines specifically of like, if you look at a singular issue like that mm -hmm. and you look at all the reasons why somebody might be hesitant to get a vaccine. Mm -hmm. If you only talk about it broadly and not about why they're hesitant specifically, then you miss opportunities to educate each other to actually have an informed conversation mm -hmm. from every perspective. And I think that fits into this discrimination mm -hmm. conversation too. If you don't understand why somebody has learned what they did thinks what they do, et cetera, you can't give them the proper information to impact their thinking. Can we talk about though also, um, I think it needs to be acknowledged that what disrespect looks like, because I think a lot of people are trying to stand up for like their political view or whatever by initially being disrespectful. And I think that in their mind, they're doing the right thing, but being disrespectful looks like being completely closed-minded to the point where you push people away and won't have that open conversation. And I think that creates an effective silence on the other person and it doesn't leave room for these right. open conversations. And I don't, I don't think that's addressed enough because that's also a complacent thing where everyone's like, oh, they won't talk about it because like it's too heated. They won't talk about it that's disrespectful. Like yeah. acting that way towards someone that wants to talk about stuff like that is disrespectful. If you're just like, leave me alone. I won't talk about it. Like that's rude. Mm -hmm. There's other ways to say that you don't want to have a conversation to say, I'm actually not that informed on this subject. I don't want to engage in this, but you know, am I right or am I wrong? <laughs> I, no, I think, I think that there's definitely validity to that, you know? And I think we live in a society where it's like, 
we think it's the best thing to do is to like jeer and jab at people um, and, you know, and make fun when it's bullying, you know, yeah. and it's like rude and mean. And so it's just one of those things where it's like, if you, and I think that the easiest way to go about it and like and that I do for myself is to say, if somebody said this to me, how would I respond? But that requires an actual sense of a, like of awareness, right? Of self-awareness, because some people will say, if somebody said that to me, like I wouldn't react that way. Yes, you would. You would. <laughs> you would not like it, right? Okay. And so, with me knowing that, I'm like, I'm definitely not going to say that. I know that I don't like somebody just coming up giving me just unsolicited perspective without asking me any type of questions or actually being inquisitive. So I don't do that to others. You know, I'm gonna say, hey, could you please like unpack it for me? Or I know. I don't want somebody to ask me a question and try to set me up and then really not actually care about my perspective or opinion. If I know that my mind is like made up or set on something, I'm not going to go into somebody's DMs or in their comments and saying, why would you think that? I, I, I have no reason to ask you that because I know that I'm not trying to hear it. So why would I try to have that conversation if I'm right. not trying to have a conversation? And so I think that's just fundamental and key is saying, you know, just the whole, the old adage, do unto others as you have others do unto you. Like speak to others in a way that you actually would like to be spoken to, you know, and then that could possibly help, you know, a lot because this is my first time thinking of this. Misinformation, big problem, big, big issue. But I'm wondering, is it only misinformation or is it disrespectful information? Is it the way that the conversation is being had that allows for misinformation to really run rampant and to, to breed, you know? So I, that's something I need to, to think to through because there's the, like, obviously there's a huge issue with misinformation, but just how we give that information and how we're talking to people, you know, yeah. I'm not going to want to hear certain things after you come, you've approached me in a certain way, you know, and you might be absolutely right, but I want to shut down because you're not speaking to me nice. Right, 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 right. And how people are taught to perceive and understand information too is a huge deal. Like we have a, like a gap in education there as well and media literacy specifically and how people perceive and understand information that's being given to them. And a lot of that does fit into their personal experience and personal bias. But I think it is, especially with social media and the way information's being shared, like we do need a media literacy needs to be a part of education. And I know actually at the well, elementary literacy too. Well, yeah, but but um, if we think of the way things are specifically socially being shared, mm-hmm. like I think that that's important. And there actually are um, elementary standards that do touch on media literacy now, which I think is incredible. That's great amazing that we are speaking to that um but like I think right now especially if we look at the current generations Mm -hmm. that are our leaders and are the people who are sharing the mass amounts of information we didn't have that because Mm -hmm. you know even for like millennials like social media didn't start until like what 2004 2005 like we were teens coming up into that so and it was like just the beginning of it and so there's this huge gap in the generations that are currently running the show that we don't even have 
media literacy for what media looks like right now and what mm -hmm. information is being shared and how it's being shared. There's so, <laughs> and that's much work whole to be <laughs> There's so much work that needs to be done. Just so much yeah. work. What would you say? Okay, to kind of tie tie this in. Um, okay, for individuals that see an issue in their community, um, and they want to help impact change, they want to impact public policy. What are the right steps to go about? bringing your um, issue to attention and how do you how do you create change how can someone create change in their community on a public policy level hmm. I mean there's a lot of theoretical steps um, that people can take um, but sometimes they just really aren't so practical and or feasible uh, unfortunate unfortunately um, you know, because, you know, theoretically, you know, a person should be able to, you know, organize, you know, their community and sign petitions and make sign on letters and pass all of that around and call their representative and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that would require them to know that that's an option. A lot of people don't know um, that that's an option because of the education um, that people receive. A lot of people just don't have the time. Uh, to deal with that and they don't feel like it's going to work because we have a history of discrimination and discounting people who have done that you know um and so there's a lot of theoretical things that community members and people can do to inform public policy uh and there are a lot of people that leverage them and they do amazing work with the community organizing the community building the sign on letters the petitions the you know the everything right that all the advocacy but I think the most important thing is that those that have positions of power, those that are in city council, county commissioners, representatives, they need to make sure that they are in the community and creating the actual avenues for people to share that information that's going to inform things. It does not need to come down to the people saying, we're going to organize and then we're going to get you this information. No. These political figures, these officials, these whoever, they need to be actively boots on the ground, going out and soliciting that feedback and that perspective, because that's what actually needs to happen. We cannot put all of the expectations to do the work and to change the systems and to raise the issue to a point where somebody will actually, you know, I'm going to say this and I hope maybe you'll take this off the podcast, I don't know, but to actually give a damn. It needs to happen on the other side. We're keeping that. We're keeping that. And, and I think too, we've seen that. I, I, we've seen here in Portland oh, yeah. that communities are willing to organize mm -hmm. and then they're not being heard. Yeah. And so I think that's where it, it goes both ways for the communities that aren't able, like you said, those in power need to be able, need to be willing to go in and do the work mm -hmm. and create those avenues but when the communities are taking part in creating those avenues for themselves, they also need to be heard and involved. And it goes back to like the restorative justice thing of like, mm -hmm. you can't do something to people or for people, you have to do it with them. Yeah. And both parties need to show up in some way and both parties. And when 
when one party is willing to put in the work to show up at the table and have those conversations to better communities and help each other and work together, mm-hmm. you can't shut them down. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of shutting down. There's a lot here. of shutting down. And then that goes right back around to the fundamental issues of the bias and the discrimination, racism, xenophobia, like homophobia, all of it. You know, like that, unfortunately, is the bedrock for everything you know, that we're seeing. And so that's one of the primary, one of our primary principles with Speaker for Health is to make sure that everybody has not only a seat at the table, but a voice in the discussion and an equitable vote in the decisions that are being made, because that's just not how things are done right now. And it's deplorable. Um, And, you know, we have to do better and there's a lot (laughs) that needs to happen because there are you know a lot of things that people can do technically but do you really have the bandwidth to do that when you're trying to survive or stay afloat or advance you know because it's not to make it seem like every single person is absolutely destitute that's not the case some people are, are in school you know, and because I even say this, you know, as a, a as an aside, but as a, but just as an example, I recognize that while I was in school, I was trying to do so much to break through, to get into a space where I had an ample opportunity and experience. My resume is too long because I was too afraid that I would not get the chance to actually exhibit my skills without having 12 pages worth of, of content. And that's an actual n- number because I had to fill that out. Um, or this resume guy the other day and I was like how did I do all of this stuff but anyway but anyway I recognized while I was at school it it did not click until I was at GW that I have to leave space for myself to advocate for myself because I was doing all I was in student government I was like volunteering this I was an interim executive director I was trying to like work have my own apartment so on and so forth but I was like, yes, there's technically like these processes and these procedures to contest a grade. But how was I supposed to contest that grade if I don't have the mental capacity to take on that burden? And so that's the same thing for communities is that whatever the situation is like, yeah, there's a system there. There, Technically, you can do that. But but can you really like do you have the bandwidth? Do you have the capacity? And a lot of people can't for whatever reason. And so that's when we have to make sure those systems are easier, but we have to have more active leadership coming through saying, okay, here, here I am in your space. Like, like, let me know what I need to do. But then there's so many issues on the other side where it's like, those people don't actually care. They want the dollars. They, they want to care about, you know, just to go back to the thing I've mentioned about the Medicaid and whose opinion really matters they're going to focus on the people that have and that have the resources and that are going to keep them in their positions more than anything. So there's a greater question that's there uh, overall um, that I don't know the answer to. Yeah, I think maybe the most important thing then um, is for community members to educate themselves on those representatives that are actually in the community doing the groundwork with people and wanting to advocate for these 
mm-hmm. health disparities for these big social issues that are tied to political policy, like public and, policies. And, and even then, sometimes the structure and the system takes those people out. That's where it's it really is like access and barriers, like all, all of it. Like Right, but what I'm trying to get at is we need to make sure that the community is looking for and voting for mm-hmm. the representatives that want to alleviate the barriers. I want to get rid of the barriers and help the most people. Yeah. And then that's when it just comes. And that's when I would say I would still try to take some of that off of the people. People should definitely be doing their homework and everything like that. Yeah. And the those that have those positions in power, like in that more official capacity or the more political capacity, should obviously be doing like their part but then that's when you see the importance of like community-based organizations with raising that awareness and doing that type of work and so it's just all it's just all a lot you know that you know needs to happen in different ways and so it just needs to be reflective of the community and the population because some people you can say hey it's important to go ahead and like do your research before you vote some people you have to really give them like the comprehensive like website or link to say like these are the people these are their issues but sometimes those websites are so high level and it's like I don't know what this I don't know literally like what this means I've looked at some candidates and like what is what is this you know like I don't know what you what you're talking talking about and that's where I really appreciate what Oregon does so like we have all mail-in voting for every election special election whatever you get your ballot in the mail and you get a voter's pamphlet Mm -hmm. and that pamphlet is pages and pages it's got every policy that's being voted on it's got every candidate and what their position is it has their website listed so you can look it up if you want more information it has people that are for or against like testimonials of people who are for or against that policy or candidate like it's this huge voter's guide so that you can actually sit down and have like but then again do you have the time to sit down and read all that information yeah mm-hmm. do you yeah have, are you working two jobs do you have the bandwidth right. yeah. and everything exactly you know so that just makes it yeah but it's a great it's, you, you still have to give people the opportunity and that's how we and that's and I guess in a lot of ways that's where we tie in is you know as advocates you know and as professionals to really like push for that change to make sure that these leaders are going to the communities and that they're doing their part to make sure that there are resources, that there is perspective, you know, that is given in that when there are communities that are trying to like to do the damn thing that they are supported in so doing. And so there's a, there's a lot that needs yeah, to yeah. You know, I, <laughs> we can I think we can, we can do it. We can make impact. We just have to continue to to keep working at it. Right. Yeah. And I feel, I mean, we've come full circle multiple times here and I feel like we could keep going, but are there any like final thoughts that you have or anything you want to we can do let a us know? Episode or- <laughs> I'll be more than happy to do that. Um, I, I just want to say that I really appreciated um, participating in this episode, in this conversation. I have some, some good notes here on some, you know, things that I want to think through and you know, some in with new like found perspective on like some of these, you know, issues and just, you know, with the recognition that there's a lot of work that needs to be done, you know, 
but to make sure not to be bogged down by it and to feel like it's too daunting because, you know, you, I said you, I'm pointing to myself, but that's also a part of it. Like we yeah. <laughs> are in this, you know, together, you know, like there's, you know, in us and there's people that are willing to do this work and we just, you know, we just need to find ways to work better together um, because there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of energy. And if we can really build up that framework, that interconnectedness, I think we can definitely amplify um, a lot of our, you know, our, our impacts and our passions uh, in the, and do, and, and act and do the service that we, that we want, you know, to protect and promote and support um, the communities across the nation and even the world. And so, you know, we have our work cut out for us, um, but I think we can, I think we can definitely do some things, but I think that's the thing that I'm really leaving with is that we got a lot of work to do, but, you know, we need to just do that work together. Yeah, completely agree. And agree. thank you so much for yes, recording you. with us and being on and no, thank you. We can mm -hmm. keep having conversations together. Yeah. Yes, yes. Plenty more, plenty more. Yeah. Well, thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. In a speech that John F. Kennedy made one time, he said, a country is as strong, really, as its citizens. And I think that mental and physical health, mental and physical vigor go hand in hand. And I had a professor say it in this way one time where um, she said, so realistically, a nation is only as strong as the health of its people. I think that quote obviously resonates constantly, but it feels, when you read it, it felt really real for right now, being in a pandemic also. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this conversation, I know you and I were talking about how there's two ways to be political and how you can have a community-based mindset and vote not just for your own self-interests, but vote with your entire community in mind. And that doesn't mean if you're a wealthier person in a wealthy neighborhood that you vote just for that neighborhood, but your greater city, your county, you know, those policies that will impact your entire community. Mm -hmm. And then the other way is to be very individualistic and consider only your needs and your immediate family right and in reality when our communities succeed our entire communities that lifts everybody up yeah and so the community mindset is really incredible one to have you said something that would make melinda french gates so proud the way you said <laughs> it lifts everyone up <sighs> a wistful sigh yeah <laughs> yeah anyway so cheers to Fia's first birthday. One year podcasting. Cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs>